passage here in Isaiah uh, 61. So for those of you that don't know sort of what season we, we find ourselves in the church right now is, is the season that we call Advent. And really the, the simple meaning of that word is, is coming, right? So Advent meaning coming. And what we do during this season is we really celebrate the fact not only that that Jesus has come, like that he took upon himself flesh, that he came and dwelt among us, that he was our Emmanuel, God with us in the past, but that he is here now and that he is coming again, that there is a promised second advent and that at that second coming that God will make all things new. Right? And so the, the joy of the believer is, is both stoked in this season, so is the, the longing of the believer right, for that time, for that day um, to come. And so the last couple of weeks we've talked about really what it is that, that Jesus brings with him. Like that when, when Jesus comes to a place, he brings certain things with him. And, and so we've talked about hope and how the Lord brings hope, hope of, hope of joy, hope of peace, right? Um, and last week we talked about peace as well, that, that he himself establishes that for us, that it's in his blood that we find it, that it's in his work, that it's in his being, that we share that not only within the church but um, in the world. And so... This week, we're just going to talk about joy. Um, and I want to say this. Uh, I, I think we talk about joy fairly regularly in the church, and, and whether it's a, a cheesy song that we grew up singing, you know, like, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, right? And we kind of, we think of it, everyone's like, yes, please stop. <laughs> um, there's a reason I don't sing with this thing turned on. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think for... for for all of the depth of that word, often we, we sort of just connotate it with or compare it with happiness, a, a simple feeling, an emotion. Um, and really what I would hope is that this morning we would see that, that joy is infinitely more than that um, and that it's, it's also infinitely I- important to us as the church. And there's a, a famous uh, British pastor theologian named uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I just want to read um, what he says to because I think that, one, he says it better than I do, but two, I think it establishes the reason that joy is such an integral part of the people of God. Um, and this is what he says. As we face the modern world with all its trouble and turmoil and with all its difficulties and sadness, nothing is more important than that we who call ourselves Christian and who claim the name of Christ should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution. And here is the answer. In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart, people characterized by a fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. And so essentially all he's doing is just saying that that one for us, the, the, the truth is something that creates this in us, but it's also something that the Lord uses in order to proclaim His goodness to a watching world. And so if joy is this important to the witness of the church, if joy is this important to, the, to sort of the truth, the veracity of the gospel being put on display, then the, the logical following question that we probably have to ask ourselves this, this morning is, where does it come from? Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Pray, Lord, this morning that the good news of the gospel of Jesus would just settle upon our hearts, upon our minds. I pray this morning, Lord, if we're believers in the room, that that we would look upon the good news of the gospel proclaimed and that we would find joy. 
in spite of circumstance. I pray, Father, that um, for those of us who are not believers in the room, Lord, that you would just show yourself, God, that you would reveal yourself through your word as you have done time and time and time again. And God, that the good news of joy in Jesus, Lord, would change hearts and minds for eternity this morning. Pray, God, that you would speak, Lord, that we would listen, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear the goodness of of your grace towards us in Christ Jesus. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're just going to dive right in. And to be honest, this is a a lot of text, and so I'm really only going to spend the majority of our time in verses 1 through 4, and we're just going to walk through them like we always do. But here's what we need to do, I think. In order to put ourselves in sort of the, the frame of mind that the people that would have heard this firsthand would have been in. And so what you have here is a, is a nation that um, throughout the book of Isaiah has sort of experienced a couple of different things, right? Isaiah is a prophet. He's, he's telling, speaking the, the words of God over the people of Israel, right? The people whom God had established a covenant with through Abraham. And what we see here is that um, if you read sort of just the first couple of chapters of Isaiah, you see that Israel has time after time after time forsaken the Lord their God. That where God has sought to establish relationship with them, they have essentially stiff-armed Him. They've said, no, we'll, we'll do our own thing. Thank you very much. And then... Of course, as, as with any moment that we choose to do those things, there are inevitable consequences. And the latter half of Isaiah, uh, really from 39 on to the end of the book, is, is sort of written to or spoken to the nation of Israel in a period of exile. So where Israel is, is no longer a nation, they've been subjugated to uh, a, a stronger nation, the Babylonians. Right, and so they're amidst a strange people, a strange culture. They have no dominant cultural authority. They have no sort of real right to exercise their beliefs. Right? They're, they're in a place of exile. And it's, it's, it's into that instance. It's into that moment. And it's into that feeling. I mean, could you imagine that? It's into that feeling of despair. It's into that feeling of forsakenness. It's into that feeling of insignificance that these words get spoken. And this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And here's the thing. This is, this is written or spoken by Isaiah, but uh, he doesn't really go on to tell us who that is. And, and what, we'll, what we'll find out later is that he's not necessarily speaking about himself. I think most of you probably know the spoiler, but let's just sit in that tension for a minute. The Lord has anointed me to do what? To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. I don't know about you, but if I was in that situation, and really even in today's situation, like just my life in general, as, as comfortable as it may be, even in sort of our American cultural vestiges that we have the joy of, of encountering, right? This, is, this still sounds like something that I would be interested in. 
that there's an anointed one coming that's going to bring good news to the poor, those who are afflicted, who's going to bind up the brokenhearted, right? doesn't matter who you are in here this morning. You've suffered that most likely at some point. And if you haven't, spoiler alert, it's coming. But there's going to be an anointed one that's going to preach good news to the poor. He's going to bind up the brokenhearted. Who's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. Right? Again, this is a nation. This is a people who are in captivity currently. Right? They've been subject now to the reign and rule of another king. A king who does not have their best interests at hand. A king who, in essence, uses them for his good. He's going to open the prison for those who are bound. He's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, I don't know about you, but this, if this is truly what the anointed one comes to do, then I not, not only want to know of this anointed one, but I actually want to know him. Right? Not just know of him, but know him. Right? This is, so this is what is being spoken through the prophet Isaiah, that there's a promise that there is an anointed one, that he's going to come, and that he's going to do these things. Now here's a second. Just, just for a brief moment, what I want us to do is compare this quickly with the first part, portion of Isaiah. Because the journey that we've been taking on throughout this book, we kind of lose a little bit by taking these, these little portions of it, right? Um, I I didn't preach here last week, but I made a joke about seriously reading just chapters 1 through 39 as a, as a whole sermon. And just read it. But that would take forever, so we're not going to do that. But I'm just going to read a quick portion um, from Isaiah chapter 3, and it says this. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. And the Lord will, will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings. The festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Now, so this is what, th- that's what the people of Israel had heard pretty much up to this point. And instead, this is what is spoken in to them. That in verse 3, that this anointed one has come to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of the ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So I don't, I don't know about you, but if, even, even if I just forget all the historical context and I just think about the news that's being proclaimed here, that there will be this anointed one who will do these things in his power and in his grace. I want to I know that anointed one. And so I think the, the two questions that we then ask ourselves is, well, who, who is it? And then two, how can we know him? Now, if you'll turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 4, I'll give you a minute to get there. And I, I would encourage you to actually turn there with me. Um, I don't often ask you to do that, but 
I want you to see these words on the pages of of your Bible, the the written word of God given to you. Luke chapter 4, and we're going to go to verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. And he came to Nazareth, this is Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. That Jesus, in perhaps his, his best, most amazing sort of mic drop moment ever, said these words. He said, look, I, I am the anointed one. It's me. Look what he says next. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And brothers and sisters, this morning we can say the same thing. That this morning, for those of us who are poor, for those of us who are brokenhearted, for those of us who are captive, who have been bound, the year of the Lord's favor has been proclaimed over you in His Son, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one. That in this moment, that in His coming, that in His advent, history is both made and fulfilled. That all of the tangles of sin that complicate our lives since the fall of Adam, Jesus at this moment begins to loosen them. Here's the thing. You might, you might ask yourself, well, he, he sort of missed part of it, didn't he? Right? Like for those of us who were observant in the room, we, what we noticed was that um, he didn't read the whole verse. Right? He only read up to the first line in, in verse 2 of Isaiah 61. The year of the Lord's favor. And so, if you're a cynic in the room, maybe you're asking yourself like, well, so... Is this just some kind of prosperity gospel? Like is Jesus himself stepping into to that role? He's just giving us sort of the good news and, and either covering over or papering over sort of the ugliness underneath. And the truth is no. And here's, here's the good thing and the distinction that I want for us to make. Because that verse should be somewhat troubling to us, verse 2. Right? And, and, and when we think about joy, which we're going to get to in a minute, when we think about joy, I don't know how, how sort of vengeance plays into that. And here's, here's the beautiful truth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon Jesus because the Lord has anointed Jesus to bring good news to the poor, to, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Brothers and sisters, this is the first Advent that we celebrate. That Jesus came and that in his coming he proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. That in Jesus we have been shown grace. That in Jesus God has said to us, 
I am giving you the greatest gift. And there is a season now in which we experience that that joy, the joy of knowing that in Christ we have been given all that we need. But in this verse, we get, we get both, right? We get both the, the first advent, that coming of Jesus, where he takes upon himself flesh and he becomes this little child, helpless, like, you know, all the same things that little babies go through now, like Jesus goes through, right? But there's a promise here that at the second advent, he's going to bring something perhaps entirely different. That the day of the vengeance of our God, he'll bring in at his second advent. And that at that moment, the, the door of grace shuts. That the year of the Lord's favor comes to a conclusion. We don't know when that is and we don't know how it's going to happen. I don't, like, let's not talk left behind. I don't know if Nicolas Cage is going to be there and it'll be a really bad, awful movie. But whatever is whatever happens, like the Lord is going to come back, and that at that moment, like that he will have his recompense. That, that he will make justice a real thing, like that that'll happen. That that things which were meant to go punished will will go punished. That anything that that fell out from underneath the, the imperfect radar of our current human justice will be made just in the sight of a grand and great God. Now you're probably asking yourself like, okay, we started with joy. Now somehow we are here in this place where we're talking about vengeance and that God's going to return, that he's going to make things right and that that's going to be really good, good news for some people and it's going to be really bad news for some people. Where, where is the joy in that? I think what we'll begin to see as, as we move forward is that, is that in justice we will find joy. And, and if you had any doubt as to whether or not maybe that's true, um, th- there's a reason that the things that are going on in our country create in us at least some sense of, of discomfort, one way or another. Like no matter what side of whatever issue you fall upon, that that there's some sense in which you feel like that's not, this is not how this is supposed to, to go or work. There's a reason that when we see injustice, we're disturbed by it, that it, bo- like that it bothers us. And what we'll see is that in Jesus, both, both coming the first time and coming again soon, in bringing his justice, we will find great joy. So the question I think that we have to ask ourselves is why, like, why? Why is there this gap? Why is there, why is there a year of the Lord's favor and then a day of vengeance? Why, why is there, like, Jesus, could you just come back now? I don't, I don't know about you, but if, if, the, if Jesus is going to come back, he's going to do all of these things and he's going to make everything right. Like, could you just come now? I'm honestly a little frustrated. And for those of us in the room who, who maybe like this is your first time in church in a while and you're like, great, vengeance, the whole thing, I've been here, heard it before, know what that is, don't want any part of it. 
Here's, here's what sort of my response would be to that. There's a verse um, in 2 Peter that I'm just going to read for you. You don't have to turn there with me unless you want to. But 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The Lord is patient with us. The Lord is gracious to us in His Son, Christ Jesus. Not only does He send the Lord Jesus, but He gives us an opportunity to respond to the Lord Jesus. And so let's answer that second question that I said we would answer, right? We wanted to ask ourselves, one, who is the anointed one? Jesus makes it very clear that it's me, right? Not me, but Jesus. I was speaking from Jesus' standpoint. Right? Jesus says, it's me. I'm, I'm, I'm the one. I'm the anointed one. I've come to do these things. How can we know him? Well, it's really, really quite simple. I mean, Jesus makes, makes the invitation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? It's just a, it's just a matter of, of coming. It's just a matter of saying, just like what Jesus said, I believe that you're the way, the truth, the life, that no one comes to the Father but through you. And here's the, here's the common miscon- misconception about that. I think a lot of times Christianity is viewed as sort of this uh, exclusive bubble of people that you have to sort of not only say all the right things, but do all the right things. And then maybe, just maybe, you'll get linked in with a crew um, that's sort of halfway halfway decent, halfway kind to one another. There's, there's some benefit sort of of being around them, but that the moment that you mess up, that not only is God upset with you, but that you are cast out of sort of that, that collective, that, that group of people. Right? There's an exclusivity. There's something that you sort of have to maintain in order to remain included in what it is that God is doing in and through his people. And yet I think what we'll notice is that there is a great exclusivity to the truth about Jesus, right? Like Jesus says very clearly, like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no one, so zero, nobody, not, not one, right, will come to the Father except through me. Like, I'm, I'm it, right? So there's no mountain and there's no 14 trails going to the same place. It's Jesus and that's it. And so it, it, it is exclusive in that sense, and yet... There is an inclusivity that is wrapped up in the invitation of Jesus. Right? So the truth about Jesus is exclusive. Like that's why we're, we're all about that. That's why we say that every single week. But the invitation to join him, the invitation to partake of the liberation of captivity, to partake of the good news to the poor, to partake of the binding up of the brokenhearted is inclusive to anyone who would come. And so this is, this is the good news. There is an anointed one that is coming to do these things. That anointed one has been revealed to us in Jesus, and we have been invited to know that Jesus. So he's not just some distant, impersonal sort of figment of our imagination that, that will sort of lend to us a sense of peace and security in a time and in a place that we need it, but that he is the all-conquering God who has come and made peace on our behalf. And that we can know Him. 
and be known by Him. Then what does Jesus do with this anointing, right? He, he does all these things, and then I think in verse 3 we see what it is that this, that this work ultimately accomplishes, right? Like, so Jesus, He's come to do something. He's, he's, he's made some references to it. What is it that that work is going to accomplish and on whose behalf? Verse 3, I'm going to read it um, one more time. It says this, To grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. And they shall build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. And so here's what the anointed one does. The anointed one, Jesus, comes and he anoints us. Isn't that what it says? That the oil of gladness will be placed where there was mourning. That, that, that God the Father anoints his son and that his son then anoints us to be his people. And that, that there's one key thing that will be said of these people. What does he call, what does he call these people in verse 3? says they will be like what? Oaks of righteousness. Now look, some of us, some of us may feel mourning. Some of us may feel brokenheartedness or the bondage of sin this morning. And some of us may even experience that as believers this morning. And, and the good news is this. The good news is that your faith will not fail while God sustains it. That you're simply not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. That you both are currently and that you will be an oak of righteousness. Why is that? Because the Lord, the anointed one, with the power of the Spirit has come to accomplish that on your behalf. Here's the thing, we've got to kind of get to this joy thing. Psalm 1611 tells us that in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. So in the presence of God is the fullness of joy now. But what we know about God is that He is good and that He is just and and that He is perfect in every way and every scope. And if we're just honest with ourselves looking in the mirror or even just recalling that thought that you had three seconds ago, you know that you are imperfect, that you are unjust, and that you are not good. And so the the presence of God for us is something that should be really in every way cut off from us, right? why Why should we experience the fullness of joy before a good, perfect, and merciful, gracious, good God when we are none of those things? Like the moment we step into it, we ruin it. It's done. Brothers and sisters, what is taking place here, what the anointed one is doing, what Jesus is doing in calling his people oaks of righteousness is supplying the goodness required for us. Psalm 16 tells us that in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. That means that we were hopeless to obtain the fullness of joy that our hearts long for. If it's with God, we have no hope of having it. 
And yet God, through the work of his son, through the promised anointed one, supplied us the righteousness required to to be admitted entrance into the presence of God in which there is the fullness of joy. And so you can freely, boldly, with confidence, step into the very presence of God because the anointed one has made you an oak of righteousness. So that's what, that's what will be said of these people. What will these people actually do, though? These people that the anointed one establishes in his righteousness. Well, they are the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And here's what it all comes down to ultimately. Those who were mourning in verse 3. By the good work of our King, our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One, are now the repair experts that we see in verse 4. That the, the devastation of many generations will be repaired through the work of Jesus, through His people. And that, I don't know about you, but for whatever reason, that phrase there stuck with me. I don't know if it's because I'm, I'm having a baby soon or, or, or what it is, but like that the generation after generation after generation, our legacy, our heritage, what we have passed on generation after generation is devastation. That's it. I mean, you don't have to look too far, do we? Whether it's race relations in the United States, whether it's Catholic Protestant in Northern Ireland, whether it's Islam Christianity in, uh, in the Middle East, uh, d- communism uh, democracy in greater Europe. Wh- Go on and on and on throughout history. You will find nothing but proof that this is true. That the sole thing that we have passed on is devastation. And brothers and sisters, that, that's what sin ultimately does, right? It creates, it creates victims who feel entitled to re- retaliate, which then creates more sin and more victims who feel entitled to retaliate, which creates more sin and more victims. And isn't it interesting that in the many wars of history, no one has ever stood up and said, hey, everybody, I'm firing the first shot. I'm picking this fight. This war is all my fault. It's all counter-strikes. Everything is return fire. We're always trying to redress a wrong, right? What are we all? We're always trying to enact, enable justice. And that's what all that's about, isn't it? If someone takes this from me, I'm going to make that right. If someone does this to me, I'm going to make that right. The good news is that Jesus, through his work, through his coming, through his taking upon himself flesh, and through his people that he has established as oaks of righteousness, will once and for all stop all of it. Why? Verse 7 reads like this. I'm just going to read the the first line. For I, the Lord, love justice. I, the Lord, love justice. So here's the thing. I think a lot of us, when we look at the world around us and we, 
we ask ourselves maybe that sort of that perennial, age-old question, right? If God is good, why is there evil? And we, we want to put the blame in, in His court, right? Like, you created this mess, it's on you. And the fact of the matter is that we are very, quite truly, in every way, responsible for the, for the fact that there is injustice among us. And brothers and sisters, it should indeed grieve us. But you know what? God has done something incredible, immeasurably good, in and through the work of His Son that has now brought justice to us. That He enacted, that God enacted justice upon Jesus in order that we might experience His grace. And that He now opens up that grace to any who, any who would take to any who would come, to any who would endeavor to see their just punishment given to another, right? That, I mean, that's what happens. Jesus experiences injustice in order that we might be given grace. Jesus enacts justice by, <laughs> by operating unjustly towards himself. And so you're you might be asking yourself then again, how are we getting back to joy? Well, I hope what we've seen thus far is that, um, again, joy is not just something that is sort of simply telling one another to be happy. In fact, often that's annoying, inconsiderate, and awfully simple. But that joy is rooted in, found in, hoped in, longed for in this assurance. This assurance that Isaiah gives us that, that those who call upon this anointed one, that those who call upon the name of Jesus will be established as oaks of righteousness, that they will then be given life that is truly life, that their life here on earth will not be one that is without meaning, that is without purpose, but that will serve to repair the brokenness, the devastation that has been passed on from generation to generation, that Jesus in His coming broke into that and put a stop to it. That at that moment, he initiated sort of that, that beginning spark that was necessary to see those things erased from our presence. That the beginnings of Revelation chapter 21 and 22, where, where God promises us that he will wipe away every tear from our eye, that there will be no sickness, no pain anymore, no death anymore. That Jesus in his first coming started the beginning of that good work and that you and I, by virtue of his grace, have been allowed to step into it with him. See, the, the joy that we so long for is found in that truth. In knowing that we can come before the presence of a, of a good God, a perfect God through the work of Jesus. In knowing that we can willfully, joyfully, excitingly welcome others into His presence through the work of Jesus. That in the work that we are doing here, that in planting churches, that in making disciples, that in sharing the gospel with people who don't know Jesus, that we are inviting them into the restoration, the reparation of all wrongs. That God not only can do this, 
but that he will do this, that he sent his son in order to guarantee it, that we now have the spirit which is a seal of it upon us. And so if you're in the room this morning, and whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, and you're, you're wondering what it means to have joy, you're wondering what it looks like to have joy, where to find joy, I'm going to read a, a quick verse from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, oaks of righteousness, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And it's in this that you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ who took upon flesh is our anointed one. And He is the one who, if you are in the room this morning and you are poor, He brings good news to you. If you are brokenhearted, He binds you up. If you are captive, He proclaims liberty over you in and through His blood. If you are imprisoned, He will loose your chains and He has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If there is anything this morning, brothers and sisters, to be joyful about. It is that. Is it is that Christ not only thought it worthy to come, but that He came and that He worked and that He has given us His Word as a statute forever, that He has established His covenants with, with us from everlasting to everlasting through His blood. If you want joy this morning, if you wonder maybe why the holidays are are not often joyful. Perhaps it's because in lieu of this, we have chosen consumerism. That in the greatest giving, we have chosen to celebrate by the greatest taking. And yet the Lord, through His Son Jesus, would extend to you joy upon joy upon joy in the eternal security that is found in Christ before the Father, sealed by the Spirit. Let's pray.